The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. His mercy endures forever. From Psalm 89. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, the psalmist called us to search the heavens and try to find one to compare with you. But there is no comparison. We can look to the earth among the sons of the mighty, the tech giants, the generals, the wealthy, the cool kids, the successful. But there is no rival to you. Who is like you, O Lord? You truly are God of gods, the Lord of lords. You are the prince of our peace. Though the rebellious world may rage like a storm, you speak and make them still. Quiet now our raging hearts that we may rightly reverence and praise you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and amen. Amen. Keep your kids. Keep your kids. That was the main theme for the Grace Agenda Conference. And you may uh, notice that we are applying this right now. We are keeping our kids in the worship service. And yes, there are like the fussy baby shuffle out the, out the aisle or gotta do the bathroom break. But generally, we keep our children in the Lord's Day service. And kids, give me your eyeballs real quick. Kids, you guys looking up here? It is so good to have you guys in church with us. We love having you guys here, and we would have it no other way. It is so good to have you kids here. And like most good work, it is also hard work for children and for parents. And this work ranges, of course, from the practical, trying to find the next song while you have... um, your um, coloring book and the baby bottle and the baby, right? All the way to keeping kids in fellowship throughout the whole service. Parents, you know that it is a lot of work keeping your kids in church. And sometimes you can forget why you are doing this. So here are three things to remember. The first is that while sometimes you need to be reminded why you are doing this, God knows exactly why you are doing it. You are here with your little ones because God calls you to worship him together with all the children he has given to you. Your labor is before the Lord. He sees and rejoices, and he himself is at work. And often, more, more so than we even know. Last week, Aaron, uh, when he was preaching, he asked, Do you want to love Jesus? And the immediate and the only response was from the back with a solid yes from a little kid. And the dad reported afterwards that the three-year-old didn't even look up from his coloring. Right? <laughs> he's listening, he's paying attention, and yes, he does want to love Jesus. And that is glorious. Second, remember that as parents, you are growing as disciples in this service. There are opportunities for discipleship with every spilled cup of wine, every dropped hymnal, and every time you have to take your child out to have a little word with him. You are not taken away from true worship by these things, but you are going further into true worship than most are privileged to do. If Christian discipleship consists of my life for yours, my life 
for yours, then what is worship when you have three to five little ones? And finally, don't think of this as a season, this time as a season of distraction, but rather as a time of fruitful planting. And trust God that he will bring a time of fruitful harvest. The sun is hot, the soil is hard, and the kids be a squirming. But trust that God will give a return 30, 60, 100 fold. So be encouraged and keep your kids. It's from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Our Father, we confess as a people that we are far too often keen to pass off the responsibilities that you have given to us. We do this as parents, as employees, as students, as friends, as children. We place a higher priority on our own convenience and our comfort rather than on obedience to you. Or if we do obey, then is often tainted with frustration and impatience. Ultimately, this is a failure to trust that what you give to us will be for our good and for your glory. Father, we ask that you would hear our voice, that you would attend to our cry. We trust that there is forgiveness with you. And so we confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior. And amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. This is from Isaiah 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Christian, if you have confessed Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and if you have once again confessed your sin to him, then God promises to forgive you of your sin. For, you have already, for he has already paid the ransom through the death of his son, Jesus. And Isaiah says the result of this is joy and gladness and no more sighing and sorrow. So Christian, hear the very good news that through, that through Christ, your sins are forgiven. And thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Is that the way, what I should have done? Or were, uh, <laughs> Okay. All right. I uh, am very, very pleased to be with you this morning. And um, I'll be uh, reading uh, the scripture in a moment. But I wanted to say a couple of things before I do that. Uh, regarding uh, tomorrow night. This may sound very odd to you, but I'm really looking forward to it. I really am. You know, I, I know we're in the West here and you have radio, rodeos and stuff, right? This isn't my first rodeo. And uh, I got a little story I want to tell quick about how I ended up at Harvard Divinity School. It was a very odd experience that we were, I, I lived in Cambridge with my wife, I, my wife's here, Marla. And um, we were in Cambridge, and I got a call from the chairman of the Republican City Committee, a good friend of mine, and he said, uh, Harvey Cox is looking for evangelicals to come in and be sort of uh, interviewed by uh, one of his classes. Now, that name, Harvey Cox, probably means nothing to you if uh, you are uh, younger than, say, 40. But uh, Harvey Cox was a public intellectual, and uh, the sort of guy, he sold like two million books uh, with uh, the publication of his book, Secular City. He was one of the death of God theologians in the 60s. So anyway, uh, Dr. Cox uh, wanted to have a couple of specimens for his class to, to examine. And uh, so they, they, they brought in me and uh, my, then uh, my friend uh, 
David Trumbull got somebody else. And uh, so we sat down, and it was basically uh, 10 to 1. There were 30 of them and three of us. And for about two hours, we just went at it. It was just sort of a, you know, one of those um, odd moments where uh, you just sensed that this was a very positive exchange, even though there was a heated disagreement. And uh, after that uh, interchange, uh, Dr. Cox came to me and said, I'd like you to come to Harvard Divinity School. And so that's how I ended up there. So uh, this is uh, something I've experienced before, and I've lived in places, we've lived in places where I'm, you know, people like us are a very tiny minority. <laughs> and there's nothing that anybody will say tomorrow or wear tomorrow <laughs> that I haven't seen more times than I can count. So, or heard more times than I can count. But I've got a little surprise for them, and it's going to be fun. So, uh, basically what we've got is we have an exchange between people who believe in the will to power and someone who believes in the word of God. That's it. The lagos of God versus Foku and Derrida. <laughs> That's what we've got. Well, uh, allow me to read the word to you today. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and uh, 12. So it's, it's only 24 verses, so don't be too intimidated. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Truly, the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years uh, and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now the Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near, when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds are, uh, do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and terrors in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the picture shattered at the fountain or the wheel uh, uh, broken at the well. Then the dust shall return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. 
The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars like well-driven nails, given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I uh, am from Hartford, and uh, Hartford is known for some things that perhaps you're familiar with or are aware of, uh, perhaps not. It's the home of Colt Firearms. It's one of the things I think that may catch some people by surprise. Uh, right down the way, we also have Mossberg. We've got um, Smith & Wesson up the street. We've got Springfield Armory. Uh, we make a lot of weapons uh, there. It's also the home of Pratt & Whitney, where the jet engines are, are constructed that go into you know, supplying the Air Force and the Marines and so forth. And we also have electric boat down the way where nuclear submarines are built. You probably weren't aware of those things. But it's also the home of tobacco. We grow the finest cigar wrappers in the world. You didn't know that either. And that's because uh, you're likely uh, familiar with Connecticut through the lens of something we call the Gold Coast. That's Fairfield County, which is sort of where all the you know, day traders and, and hedge fund managers live outside of New York City. So they've kind of colored everyone's impression uh, uh, you know, what is Connecticut's all about. But something you probably are aware of is that uh, Hartford is home to lots of insurance agencies, like the Hartford, you know, or Cigna, or Travelers. And uh, what we have here is basically a passage of scripture that's dealing with risk management. So when I preach this to my people and I talk to them about risk management, they're all like, yeah, I understand that. I know where you're going with this. And uh, what we have here is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a passage that tells us bad things can happen and you need to be ready. So prepare while you can for some bad things that you can't even predict. There's no way you can even imagine what is possible. And, uh, and, and, and as you read, you know, the passage, or as I read the passage, uh, you know, as I was considering what should I, you know, what should I talk about, I couldn't help but remember um, all of the disaster films that came out in the 70s when I was a kid. They were just, you know, one after the other. And it seemed like Charlton Heston was in, was in every one of them. <laughs> you know, you had uh, Omega Man and Soylent Green. And when Soylent came out, that thing that people drink today, my son worked for Soylent for a little while. I was like, haven't these people seen the film? <laughs> this isn't good. But anyway, uh, and, and you had Planet of the Apes, of course. But one of, one of my favorites was Earthquake. I don't know if you remember Earthquake. It just doesn't seem to like, create the same effect uh, streaming on your 52-inch home theater system. You know, you have to actually be in the theater to get the full effect because they would crank up the volume. And I remember going to see Earthquake and feeling the quake, if you know what I mean. They would have that volume cranked and the theater was just rocking. And that was the whole idea. You were supposed to sort of feel like you were in an earthquake. I've actually been in an earthquake. I was in the Great Northridge quake back in 1992 in Los Angeles, uh, not too far from the epicenter. In fact, I was getting ready to fly back to the East Coast, and if that if that earthquake had hit just a little bit later, I might have been on that overpass that collapsed. But uh, it was a pretty significant quake. I was actually on a hide-a-bed when it hit in somebody's living room. And, I, and it was about 4 in the morning that it hit, and you know, I'm just feeling the bed rocking like this. And I'm thinking, you know what's going on? And I realize, earthquake. And I think, ah, i got to get under the bed. i got to get under the bed. So I try to squeeze under the hide-a-bed, and I realize you know, there's, no, there's no squeezing under the hide-a-bed. And then I realized... There's the front door. <laughs> I just stand in the door, you know, because I had seen some of these things, you know, tell you that, 
you know, a door frame is a good place to stay, stand when there's an actual earthquake going on. And so I open the front door of the house, and I'm standing in there because I'm kind of groggy, and I'm standing in the, in the doorway, and I'm seeing all the other neighbors just running out of their houses into the street. I'm like, okay, that's what you do. You get out of the house, so <laughs> around into the street. But anyway, so I've experienced uh, a disaster. But, you know, uh, the 70s, with all those disaster films, uh, had, had a kind of a, it was, it was a cultural moment that reminds me a little bit of, of our time today. Um, you know, ecological disaster, uh, financial disaster, overpopulation, that kind of stuff. Do any of you remember the book Silent Spring? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, the older folks. You know, we all know this is like the third time we've been through this ecological disaster scare. So you get a little cynical after a while. Um, Silent Spring is about the, the you know, the sort of the warning that if, uh, you know, we keep up with, uh, you know, all of the abuse of the environment that we are engaged in, all the insects will die and there will be no more birds and, that, you know, it, it, it's sort of a, a cascading effect and everything's just going to fall apart and we're all starve. So, uh, you know, after a while, the chicken little thing kind of wears thin and you're like, all right, it's time. But the young people, it's like brand new. It's like, oh, you know, because they have no historical sense at all. They have no memory of anything. Uh, and uh, <laughs> literally because, you know, they're younger, but also because no one tells anybody anything anymore about the past. It's really weird. But bad things can happen. Bad things do happen. I was in an earthquake. That was a bad thing. Uh, but we have other bad things that we can recall. I mean, there's 9-11 in my lifetime, and of course there was the subprime mortgage crisis, that was something that almost brought down the entire global economy, that was a bad thing. Uh, and th I have rec memories of other things that were pretty bad, not on, those, on, on the scale that I'm talking about now. There is the Black Death, there was the Cultural Revolution in China, you know, there are a lot of things that have happened that were really bad and a lot of people died. So th bad things can happen. And when we, when we think about those things, in retrospect, we can kind of see how things were kind of leading to a crisis. We, we can almost, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Of course we knew that was going to happen. And, but that's after the fact. But no one was really expecting those things. And that's what the preacher is talking about here. There are things that can happen that you just can't be ready for. And... Uh, it's enough to make you a prepper. You know what prepping is, right? Probably out here, everybody preps. <laughs> you know, back east, we read about you guys. But, uh, you know, prepping, of course, you know, you build your bunker, you know, you, you stock up on spam, you get a lot of ammo, you know, you buy it, you know, that's made in Connecticut. <laughs> but, you know, you get ready for the worst and the, and the rampaging hordes, you know, kind of going through the streets and looting houses and that kind of stuff. And uh, here we have some very odd advice because what you have with the normal sort of you know, perspective with a prepper is you gotta sort of you know, lay aside things for tomorrow, hoard, get your stores you know, stocked, and then when the, bad, you know, when the bad thing happens, you'll be ready. You know, you'll, be, you'll be able to eat beans, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, but here, the the preacher says, you know, that's not what you ought to do. You ought to, you ought to cast your bread upon the waters. So it's bunkers or soggy bread. That's kind of the choice. You know, I kind of was like, what are you doing with this bread on the water stuff? But let me go back and read that again, verse, beginning at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. In other words, the preacher's saying this is, this is how you prep for disaster. You need to cast your bread upon the waters. Now, as I looked at that, I thought, well, you know, a lot of financial planners would talk about diversification, you know, maybe putting some money into gold, <laughs> you know, putting some money into your 401k, maybe getting some, some assets like uh, real estate or something, so you've got all sorts of stuff that... that, that that's there for you that you can turn to in, in time of need. But I don't really think that's what the preacher's talking about. 
I think what the preacher's talking about is an awful lot more like what we see in Luke chapter 16 with the unjust steward. You remember that story? That's one of the weirdest parables there is. Well, let me just kind of give you the quick, the quick version. Once upon a time, this is Jesus, once upon a time there was a, there was a manager. He was a, a, a house steward, and uh, he had been on the sly. He had been stealing from his master. The master found out, and the master served notice, you're fired as of next Friday. Now, why he gave him an extra, you know, extra couple weeks, we don't know. But, uh, but anyways, he's been served notice. He's out of a job, but not quite yet. And so he's thinking, you know, what am I going to do? I, I'm not very strong. You know, I can't dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So what am I going to do? Ah, I got it. I'll give away more of my master's stuff. So he calls in all the, you know, debtors, and he says to, to them, you know, hey, what do you owe my master? And the guy says, hey, I, now, this is, this is the Wiley paraphrase, so, you know, I'm going to miss the certain things. But he's, he tells them, you know, I owe him 100 bushels of wheat or whatever, and he says, mark it down to 50. And he's like, wow, that's great, thanks. <laughs> and he signs the, and, that, and then, you know, that's how it goes. All these, all these debtors come in, they have their bills marked down, and then... Uh, the, the, the John Just Steward is saying to himself, now I've got all these people who, who like me, who are, who are grateful for, you know, for the, this, this marvelous act of generosity <laughs> that I've just, I've just engaged in. I've, I've given away more of my master's stuff. It's, you know, I'm a very generous guy. And, and, and Jesus says, and this is what throws everybody, this is what throws everybody. Jesus says, be like that guy. And you're like, what? Be like that guy? And Jesus says, yeah, be like that guy. Because he says, the children of, the, of this world are, are, are wiser than the children of light. Because this guy had control over things that really weren't his, and he used them to gain favor with people around him. And by the way, and this is, the, this is the, sort of the tacit message, you're like that guy already. You already have wasted your master's goods. You really have right? You really don't own any of the stuff that you've been claiming to own, right? Well, go ahead and just give it all away then. <laughs> just, you know, get, you know, help people out. And so you'll, you'll be welcomed into their homes someday when you need help. There you go. So what is being commended here is not lying and cheating or any of that kind of stuff. It's actually being honest, that's what's being commanded, honesty about what's yours and what's not and what's really in your best interest. So what I told my people back home is uh, when I preached this message, I said, I've got a bunker. I've got a bunker for that day of disaster. You are my bunker. <laughs> you know, if you get a phone call from me, you know, uh, remember me when I cut your bill, you know, that, that sort of thing. You really need to think about the church as the bunker, your extended family as the bunker, your neighbors as your bunker. This whole life, you know, we've, got, we've gotten into the habit of watching Survivor and thinking that's the way the world really works. No, the world doesn't work that way. It's when people pull together that they survive. You know, in real life, if people behaved like they do in Survivor, they'd all be dead. So, be a prepper. That's the real survival shelter. But there is a kind of a disaster that uh, you cannot find shelter uh, from that each and every one of us will experience. And that's where he goes next. Uh, the preacher goes next in this, this passage. And so I'm jumping over the, the nice stuff about you know, enjoying yourself while you're young. And I'm getting down to the part where he st says, you know, enjoy yourself while, you know, you, you, I hope you enjoyed yourself while you could because there are some dark days coming. So let's get down to those. And he says uh, uh, in Ecclesiastes 12, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Of course, he's referring to aging and uh, the decay of the body. And he goes on to say, uh, to say while, the light of, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened, 
and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, now he's, he's, he's transitioned here and he's talking about a later point. And, uh, he, and the strong men bow down and the grinders cease because they are few. And those that look through the windows uh, grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and the terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. And then that last line, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Now there's a disaster that awaits us all. The uh, friend, uh, Nancy Piercy, who did one of the, one of the uh, well, she did a foreword for my last book. She has a book out entitled Love Your Body. I don't know if you've heard about that book. It's done quite well. But we live in a day where people are not really sure what to think about their bodies. They have some questions about how to regard them. And this, is, this isn't a new problem. Uh, historically, there was something known as Gnosticism. And according to the Gnostics, your bodies uh, and your spirits were, were not, uh, they don't have the same origins, meaning that uh, they have different creators. In, in one case, uh, your body was created by a demiurge, sort of a, a clumsy god who, who's got a lot of power but doesn't really get things, you know, right. But uh, your spirits uh, are sort of a, they find their source in the, 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 the a god who is nothing, uh, who, who, who doesn't create or have anything to do with the physical world, and you, you ha are at home in that God, but, he's, but, there's, but there's no way that that God wants you to have you know, a, a, a genuine connection to your body because your body didn't really have its origin in, in his creative work. It's kind of like this. It kind of works like this, the way the Gnostics thought about it. Now, when I was a kid, living in St. Louis, we would, we would catch fireflies with mayonnaise jars. We'd take the mayonnaise out first. But we would take, and, then, and, if, and, the, and the, those of us who were a little less cruel would put holes you know, in the top, like that was really gonna help. And then we'd go out at night, you know, and then we'd have all the fireflies you know, blinking, and it was just a lot of fun to see who could catch you know, as many fireflies as possible. And there would, you know, then we then we take those fireflies in the jars home, and then we put them on our our dressers, and we turn off the lights and go to sleep as those fireflies blinked and died. <laughs> that was that was what that was our idea of fun. But the way the Gnostics thought, your body was like that mayonnaise jar, or and you need to get out. You need to get out, and the, and the way out is through kind of secret knowledge. You learn how to unscrew the jar, and you, you escape. That's what Gnosticism is all about. And so the body for, for, for Gnostics is a kind of prison, something you're kind of locked up in, and, and you can't get out of. And it's a frustrating thing, and it hurts a lot, and it, and it decays, and it may have uh, characteristics that you're not too pleased about, and well, that's why you need to, to kind of get away from it and sort of get it behind you. Now, today, we have uh, a, another sort of way of thinking about the body that has to do a lot with the way we think about everything in creation, and it's a kind of me mechanistic understanding of the body, that our body is a kind of machine, like a machine made of meat. Um, and so it's sort of software in the sense that, or actually, I've heard some materialists describe it as wetware. So you've got you know, the, the software of the mind sort of in this computer uh, robotic thing that is, you know, made of flesh. That's the wetware, not the hardware. And this is why people like Ray Kurzweil and other sort of, you know, crazy transhumanist types out of Silicon Valley have the dream of sort of downloading their consciousness into an actual machine. They've kind of gotten things all sort of discombobulated. They actually have kind of confused the metaphor with the, with the thing that's being referred to. 
You know, robots and machines are kind of like people, but people are not really like robots, if you get what I'm getting at. But people tend to think of the body in that way today. And you, I'll even, I even hear Christians sometimes refer to their own bodies in almost mechanistic terms. I've, I've even heard you know, preachers use metaphors drawn from, from the world of uh, you know, computing, like download that information from the Bible into your brain, you know, that kind of talk. And uh, it fails to do justice to the fact that uh, we don't make our bodies. God made our bodies. They're his creation, and they're meaningful. And the meaning is not entirely in our hands. And that's terribly offensive to many people. But it's what the scriptures inform us. So what is the body? The body is a kind of dwelling place, and it does decay. And what we have described here for us is its collapse. So it's true that bad things happen to good people, and one of those bad things is aging. <laughs> and we will age, and we will die, and our spirits will depart. But we don't go into a kind of Gnostic heaven where spirits just sort of do their disembodied thing. Instead, the scriptures promise us that we will receive a new dwelling place. And I want to direct your attention to a passage that makes that very clear. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is tremendously important because many Christians today uh, do not really believe in the resurrection of the body. I'm going to get very explicit. This is why cremation is on the rise. It's because we think of our bodies as worn out hardware, kind of like that computer you bought in 1995. And it's just sitting in your basement. That's an incorrect way to think about it. Jesus rose bodily from the dead and made the point of eating fish and telling people, touch me, I'm not a ghost. And, and that's to reinforce the truth that our bodies have a future. And that means your body now is not trash. It's not something. Now, you may not be happy with certain aspects of it. I understand I, I, I can identify with that. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's your dwelling place. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For it is for in this tent, uh, for this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared uh, uh, us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. It is true that we will have a new dwelling place, but there's a relationship between the dwelling place that we inhabit now and the one that we will enjoy then. Jesus could be recognized. Now, at the end of the matter, at the, at the very end of this passage, the, uh, the preacher uh, brings his point home what you should do to be, to be prepared. And uh, one of the things that uh, he stresses is that, uh, well, uh, that we should begin with the end in mind. And he says that in verse 1 of, of chapter 12. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Know now where you will find yourself later. And then that's what leads to this description of the decay of the body. And that, by the way, that, that poetic uh, presentation of the, of the decay of the body is just delightful in, in, in a way. When the grinders cease at your teeth, when those who look through the windows grow dim, your sight. You know, he's describing your, 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 your uh, physical capacities failing. And then finally, the, the house 
collapses and the spirit departs. So remember that, and by necessity also remember uh, that the whole duty of man is summed up uh, in uh, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is, man, this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, what's fascinating to me is before we get to that point, we have a eulogy for the preacher who apparently died before those last verses were written. And we see that when uh, the preacher is spoken of uh, in the third person in the past tense, <laughs> after the vanity is vanity. You know. By the way, vanity, as probably many of you know, is uh, a translation of the Hebrew habel, which it means vapor. So basically, life is a vaporous thing. If you've ever been to, to San Francisco and seen the morning fog, you know, and how that's burned away as the sun, uh, you know, rises and, and it dissipates, that's essentially what James was getting at when he talked about our lives being a mist that appears for a little while on the horizon and is just burned away. That's, that's life. So every time you hear the word vanity in Ecclesiastes, think of vapor. Your life is like a vapor. But the preacher dies. And uh, we're told in verse 9, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The word, uh, and then he goes on to describe what those words helped to produce. But I think that, that as a preacher myself, I strive to find the appropriate word. I try to get my point across in a way that's as appealing and, and as, as uh, uh, easy to receive as possible. But there's a kind of paradoxical quality to that whole process and that comes out uh, in, in what follows here. And what are, the, what are those words? The words of the wise are goads. Now you're probably wondering, what in the world is a goad? And the words of scholars like well-driven nails. No, I got that. And uh, dri uh, given by one shepherd. In other words, the, the words of the preacher are intended to get you moving. A goad was something that was, would be placed behind a plow animal to discourage backing up. You back up into those well-driven nails, youch! <laughs> you move forward. You keep on moving forward with that plow. And so the preacher's job is to kind of motivate you. You know, there's the, there's the honey. That's the, the well-chosen word the turn of the phrase, the delightful thought. And then there is, get going! There's the goad. <laughs> you know, don't back up, keep moving forward. And where are you striving to get? Well, to obedience. To keeping those commands. Because you will be held accountable for what you do in your body. You will give an account. Now, there is the rest of the story. You remember Paul Harvey? How many people here remember Paul Harvey? Yeah, oh, good. It's because I'm in, I'm in Idaho. You know, I ask questions like that back home. Paul Harvey, what are you talking about? Unless someone is in, you know, my, about my age or older. Well, as you know, how Paul Harvey ended his, many of his, his uh, stories was, and now the rest of the story. He would kind of set you up. You know, and you're like, what's going to happen next? And then he would do the big reveal. I didn't know that about Jimmy Carter. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, I remember, though, uh, as I was looking at this, that there's something that you and I know that Solomon could only see very dimly. And that is the advent of our Lord and his life in the body and his resurrection from the dead. And what that all means to us today, it means that there is a, an extra chapter, a sequel, that because Christ died for us and rose for us, that's one of those weird things that we in the 
Protestant world tend to downplay, but our justification is actually tied to the resurrection of the Lord. It's because he rose that we are justified. And because we die with him, we will rise with him. So that brings me back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have something to look forward to. We do have uh, a body that, that we will we will be, have uh, that we can put on on that final day, and everything will end well. You know, mar- marvelously, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a an essay, or actually delivered a lecture that was uh, published as an essay entitled "On Fairy Stories." And in that essay, he talks about something uh, call, that he calls the U catastrophe. We've been talking about catastrophes. You know, your death is a catastrophe. My death will definitely be a catastrophe. <laughs> you know, so, you know, catastrophes are bad things. But you, epsilon, epsilon, that's, that's uh, Greek for good. So this is a good catastrophe. And what, what Tolkien says in that essay or in that address is that, that the real genius uh, or the real secret to a, a successfully told fairy story is the happy ending that sort of creates the, the, the you know, that, that, that sort of choked up feeling, <laughs> you know, that, that it's almost too good to be true, but at the same time, it, you, you can believe it. You know, the way the Lord of the, uh, of the Rings ends, how everything comes together at that moment, and you realize kind of hindsight 2020, of course it all comes together like that in the end. But it's a revelation at that moment, and your heart skips a beat. That is the way your story ends if you're in Christ. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a preview of coming attractions. And I'll leave you with that thought. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, I pray that uh, you will help us to live in the light of your glory that we see in Christ, our resurrected Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in another part of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, the preacher says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. God has already accepted your works. And that is a remarkable statement. It doesn't take too much, to consi- uh, too much consideration to determine that your works are not acceptable. So why has God done this? God has accepted your work because you have been made acceptable by the work of Christ. And this is the good news of justification. When Jesus died on the cross, God judged all evil. Every secret envy, bitterness, laziness, bad attitude, every sin of his people. And then Jesus gave his righteousness, his good work to us. Paul says, for he, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And based on the work of Christ, the acceptableness of Christ, you are now acceptable. And you got to realize this is all grace. And this is the basis of all Christian joy and merrymaking. This is the basis of this table. Here is bread. Here is wine. And we can eat and drink with joy and a merry heart. Why? Because you are not trying to earn God's favor or prove how super acceptable you are. We are not trying to be good enough to be invited to his party. No, his party is for the riffraff, for the lonely, for the failures, for the broken, for sinners with unacceptable works. And get this, this is very important. Sinners with unacceptable works who have been forgiven and justified and made acceptable in Christ. The command of Ecclesiastes 9-7 is go. 
Go eat your bread and drink your wine. And as Christians, there is that outward orientation to our life. Go love your wife. Go work hard at your job. Go love your neighbor. And go do all of this with a joyful and merry heart. But here at this table, we now have another command. Come. Come. Here is bread. Here is wine. Eat and drink with joy. Come, for God has already accepted your works. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have provided your son who has made us acceptable through his works. Even as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we are reminded of how we are made acceptable through the death and resurrection of your son. Pray that you would strengthen us to go and live faithfully for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Before the last good word, which is what the benediction means, I had asked Pastor Ty if I might just say something. I uh, want to make it absolutely clear that what I was getting at earlier is I've seen God work in the past. Not that I've worked in the past. I'm a, like Joseph in this sense, that I've had experiences like Joseph had in prison, where there was a dream that required an interpretation, and Joseph said, God will give you the dream, or the correct interpretation, the power is not in me. The power is not in me to perform well tomorrow night. Without God's help, I will fail. If God does not go before and prepare, there's nothing good that will come out of what happens tomorrow night. So would you pray that we know that we're not just a bunch of people in a room, but there is someone else there with us who is working and speaking and not just me. I wanted to make that clear because I was, as I was reflecting on it, I was kind of mentally in a hurry to get to my sermon and I, I realized I didn't make that clear. It's the Lord who will give the answer. It's the Lord who will give the interpretation tomorrow, not me. So please pray that that would be uh, what happens. And now the benediction. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.